I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Sometimes Christians like us find ourselves wondering what a book like Daniel might really have to offer us in our day and age. Some of us who do think maybe it does have something to offer, we just turn to it for cute stories during vacation Bible school, or maybe a diet plan to try and lose some weight, or maybe some secret code about when Jesus is going to return. But really, Daniel isn't about any of those things. Daniel offers something much better than those things. The book of Daniel has much to tell us about the character of God. It has much to tell us about what it looks like for God's people to be faithful in a world where they're no longer on top. I believe that second point is particularly relevant in our current time. I truly believe that American Christians find ourselves at a crossroads of sorts, similar to how God's people in the book of Daniel found themselves at a crossroads. We're entering a time where Christians may no longer be the majority in America. A time where it may no longer be socially advantageous to identify as one of God's people. And really for the first time in most of our lives, we might find ourselves actually having to pay a cost in order to be followers of Jesus. The book of Daniel has much to tell us about the God that we are called to be faithful to, regardless of what culture around us is doing. And the book of Daniel gives us examples of what that faithfulness can look like. Now, before we dig into the book of Daniel itself, we need to do some homework about how we got where we are, how God's people arrived where they are. After King David's death, the kingdom of Israel enters a tumultuous time, to say the least. Solomon's reign was okay, but after he's gone, Israel is characterized by division Rebellion, violence, injustice, idolatry. Kings come and go all the time. Most of them are wicked. Most of them do not seek God in any way whatsoever. Except for a select few, the priests and the royal officials and the prophets, they pretty much all play along with these wicked kings. God sends good prophets like Isaiah warning the people of Israel to return to God, lest judgment come their way. Some of God's people in the northern part of the kingdom are taken a captive by Assyria in 722 B.C. And while you'd think that the people in the south might see what happened to the people in the north and maybe learn a lesson, maybe heed the warning and abandon their idolatry and their sin and their rebellion because they don't want to end up like those northern Israelites. They don't heed the warning. The people in the south are just as wicked and just as rebellious and just as idolatrous as ever. Now, eventually another empire arises in the place of Assyria, and that empire is known as Babylon. Israelite kings like Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim look to Egypt for help. After all, their kingdom isn't as strong as it used to be, and they know that eventually Babylon's going to come for Israel. But the prophet Jeremiah warns them that it's far too late to look for Egypt to help. It's far too late. That won't do any good. 
Because something more is at work here. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, another phrase for Babylon, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. And every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. The reason Egypt can't help God's people is because this isn't just some empire taking over. This isn't just Israel being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This isn't just Babylon taking advantage of a weakened and vulnerable kingdom next door. It's much more than that. What's happening is God's judgment against his own people in the form of Babylon. The problems really start in 605 B.C. That's about the time that Daniel is captured. And after that, things get progressively worse through the rule of Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, the wicked kings we just mentioned. But then everything really hits the fan under King Zedekiah in 586 B.C. We read about that in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, pretty specific dating, that tells you this might be an important event. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged for the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So we see Babylon besiege Jerusalem. They tear down the walls of God's city. They burn the temple that Solomon had built. Now, some people like Daniel had already been taken away by this time. 
But this is where things really hit rock bottom. This is the darkest period in the history of God's people. God had given them everything. They had land, they had power, they had wealth, they had influence, they had kings, they had this beautiful temple. But they lose it all because they turned their backs on the God who saved them. If you really want to know just how bad things get, read a passage like Psalm 137. We read there, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. We see the Israelites suffering in Babylon. The people who are holding them captive as prisoners of war, tell them to sing. Sing us one of the songs of that city of yours that you love so much that we burn to the ground. And the Israelites say, no, we can't sing that song. Not after the horrors that we have seen. And in one of the most vulnerable and brutally honest passages of all scripture, we see Israelites praying. God bless the person who kills the children of Babylonians. That's how dark and bad and bitter things really are in the history of God's people at this time. Now, many of those Israelites, as they're sitting down by the waters of Babylon and weeping, they're probably asking themselves a question. Has God finally, once and for all, abandoned us? Has God forgotten the promises he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David? All those times before when God's people rebelled, when they sinned, when they were guilty of violence and injustice, God forgave them. But this time, has he finally had Enough. The book of Daniel gives us the answer to that question. So with that, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of our Bibles. That will be located on page 625. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we read Daniel chapter 1, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, we read passages like 2 Kings 25 and Psalm 137 and really the entire book of Jeremiah. And it can be just incredibly disheartening to think about the darkness and the sorrow 
and the weeping that your people experienced during their time in exile. But God, through that, you proved to be faithful. And you proved to keep your promises. And you proved to be trustworthy. And God, I pray that this morning and in the weeks ahead, as we read more about Daniel, as we read more about you, we would be even more convinced of that. That you are faithful to your people. That you do keep your promises. And that you are trustworthy. So trustworthy, in fact, that we would trust you in eternity. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word and the privilege that we have of reading it together. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start by reading Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So... Babylon besieges Jerusalem for the first time in 605 B.C. And the author in Daniel chapter 1 emphasizes something that may be easy to skip over. We might not really read a whole lot into it. But you notice that he doesn't say that Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem. He doesn't say that Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem. It says God gave King Jehoiakim into his hand. God gave the vessels of the temple into his hand. Again, this isn't just some random empire coming in and taking over and overpowering God's people. God is behind this. He gives Jerusalem into their hands because this is his judgment against his people. Everything is taken to Shinar, another name for Babylon, about 60 miles southwest of today's Baghdad. And for the Israelites, that name, Shinar, that's a haunting name. That's a haunting place. That's where one of the earliest forms of humanity's rebellion against God took place in the Tower of Babel. All the vessels of the one true God who created everything, this beautiful, ornate, worshipful stuff, all these things are placed in the temple of a worthless idol. One of the worthless gods that the Israelites went after. 
Nebuchadnezzar takes some of his more promising captives, the ones who are strong and good looking and educated, and decides to invest in them. He probably does so so that they can oversee their fellow captives, their fellow Israelites. They're going to be trained and taught for three years, and the goal at the end of those three years is complete assimilation. By the time their training and their learning is done, they will be good little Babylonians. Not even recognizable anymore as God's people. Their language, their learning, their food, even their names will be different. There will be nothing left of who they were before. Specifically, we meet four young men. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, before we go any further, all things considered, it could be worse for a guy like Daniel. I mean, sure, he's taken away from his home. Sure, his family name won't really help him here. And sure, the Babylonians are trying to take away every single part of his identity. But the truth is that if he just keeps his head down, if he just does what he's told, if he doesn't rock the boat, then he could salvage a decent life in Babylon. He could still ascend to some relative level of success and influence and power and wealth. Just go with the flow. Don't cause any problems. But then we get to Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So again, all Daniel had to do was just cooperate. Just do what you're told. But Daniel doesn't appear to be cooperative. Daniel takes a stand. For some reason, he believes that eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine is going to leave him defiled. Now, maybe the food and wine were involved in some kind of idolatrous ceremonies. Or maybe Daniel was just angry. And this is his way of kicking back at the king for what he had done. But either way, Daniel takes a stand. Now, the chief eunuch in charge of Daniel's welfare is concerned. Because if some of Nebuchadnezzar's prized captives starve, then he's going to have to answer for it. But the chief eunuch likes Daniel. Specifically, it says God gave Daniel favor and compassion in their sight. 
So Daniel proposes a test. Go along with my request for 10 days and then we'll go from there. And sure enough, 10 days later, Daniel somehow looks even better and healthier than those who ate the food and drank the wine. Even though Daniel is a minority in Babylon, even though it would be a whole lot easier to just go with the culture he finds himself in, even though he could be risking his chances at a decent life in Babylon, Daniel refuses to sacrifice his integrity. He refuses to do anything that he believes will dishonor God. Now, that's all well and good, but the question still remains. Is God really going to notice? After all the sin that God's people have committed, all the rebellion they've been guilty of, is he really going to turn or pay attention to one captive rejecting a stake? Like the man who mistreats his wife for years, stopping at the grocery store and picking up flowers and thinking that's going to fix everything, is this gesture just a little too little too late? Is God even going to pay attention? But God does notice. God sustains Daniel and his friends. They look even better than the rest of the captives. Of course, the question that we might ask ourselves at this point, and it's a good question to ask, have we ever been tempted to compromise our integrity or our faithfulness to God? Maybe it's cutting corners at work for the sake of a promotion. Maybe it's cheating on a test for the sake of that higher GPA. Maybe it's making that shady financial decision for the sake of more money that maybe the decision's not technically wrong, but eh, I don't know. You just kind of feel a little iffy about it. Those examples might seem small, but those examples can turn into something much bigger the more comfortable we get with them. Now, sometimes we do sacrifice our integrity and nothing happens. It doesn't seem like we get punished at all. Sometimes we take a stand, and God doesn't seem to notice that either. No reward comes our way. But God noticed this gesture from Daniel. It's not going to automatically fix everything. I mean, after all, Daniel is still a prisoner. But God does see what this young captive does. Let's pick up in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. For the third time in this chapter, we see two words here that are very, very important. God gave. The further we read, the more clear it's going to become in the book of Daniel that God is still at work in this whole situation, even as his people weep 
by the waters of Babylon. God's the one who gave Jerusalem over in the first place. God's the one who gave Daniel favor in the sight of the chief eunuchs. God's the one who gave these four men gifts, and Daniel's gifts will prove particularly handy in the weeks ahead. God is equipping. God is sustaining. God is empowering Daniel. Because God's not done with his people yet. As a result of all this, Nebuchadnezzar grows to love these men. That's a good thing because Daniel's going to be there for a long, long time. Well after Nebuchadnezzar comes and goes. Now earlier we asked the question. After all they've done, all their rebellion, all their idolatry, will God remember his people? Has he finally had it with these people? Are his promises made to Moses and David and all those who came before them, are those promises null and void? Is God content to just sit back and watch his people rot by the waters of Babylon? The answer is no. Already, one chapter in, we're seeing that even now, in this idolatrous and rebellious place, where Babylonians are looking to stamp out any trace of God's people's identity, the place where they ended up because of their own sin, they brought this upon themselves. Even there, in wicked Babylon, God is at work. Specifically, he's at work through a young man named Daniel. So what do we learn about God in looking at this? Well, we learn several things. We learn that the story of God's people doesn't end in exile. We learn that God doesn't go back on his promises. We learn that God is not content to let sinners wallow in their own well-deserved punishment forever. God goes after them, even as far as Babylon. In Daniel 1, we see this glimmer of God's faithfulness. But later in the Bible, we will see the ultimate expression of his faithfulness, not in Babylon, but on the cross. Another man will leave home to dwell in a place of idolatry and violence and injustice. He'll be tempted to compromise and yet remain faithful to God. That man will go so far as dying a perfect sacrificial death for you and for me. That man is not Daniel. That man is Jesus. Fully God and fully human. God's own son sent to a place like Babylon to redeem his people. The Israelites deserved ultimate, final, unequivocal abandonment for their sin. And yet God is faithful to his promise to redeem them. The same can be said of you and me. We deserve ultimate, final abandonment because of our rebellion and our idolatry. And our violence, and our injustice, and our wickedness. And yet, God sent Jesus to redeem us from our Babylon. 
that we wouldn't have to stay in exile forever. That we wouldn't have to stay in a place of weeping and suffering and punishment and guilt. That we might turn to him and find redemption through his blood. God was still at work through Daniel. And God is at work through this very moment through Jesus. Bringing sinners like you and me to himself. I pray that we might preach this and share this to any and every person who finds themselves in their own personal Babylon. And that we might pray and earnestly expect that God can work in that. Let's pray. Father, as we've talked before here on Sunday mornings, as we read Old Testament stories about your people rebelling and your people chasing after wickedness and violence and injustice and idols, sometimes it's easy for us to think, man, these people were clueless. They had God right in front of them. God was active amongst them. God was very, very tangible to them, and yet they still rebelled, and yet they still disobeyed. These people are just hopeless. And yet we're not really any different at all. We are just as rebellious. We are just as sinful. And yet your mercy shines bright through that. And so, God, I pray that as we read this story of this dark and sobering and sorrowful time, in the history of your people, that we wouldn't just focus on the darkness and the bitterness and the suffering and the pain and the loss. That we would see, even in these stories, even in that darkness, there is that light that you offer shining through. That you are at work, even in the worst situations, to love and save and redeem your people. God, I pray that we would trust you in that. That when those times of darkness come in our lives, which they inevitably will come, that we would continue to trust in your faithfulness. Continue to trust in your promises. Continue to trust that you have not abandoned us. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, in the book of Daniel, we see an incredible story of God's faithfulness, and yet an even better story, an even better look at God's faithfulness is at the cross. And so this morning, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if the cross doesn't really mean anything to you, if that time of communion came a few minutes ago and you just kind of let it pass on by, I pray that you would talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to tell you more about what Jesus' blood shed for you means and what Jesus' body broken for you means and that you too can find redemption through the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. So if you don't believe that yet, talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions. And I pray that you would leave here changed and redeemed and saved and justified by Jesus' blood.